are things that happen in this world, horrible things for which we have no explanation. Sometimes we are content to simply push them to the back of our minds and forget they ever happened. And sometimes we convince ourselves that they're nothing but an accident, a horrible, horrible accident. And sometimes their spirits are stronger than ours and in desperation, they haunt us forever. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. a bit of a diversion this week. (laughs) I know last week we told you that we would be covering the murders of Don and Antonio Armstrong. However, (laughs) they're usual. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Whenever we're prepared in advance, something weird goes wrong. And Mm -hmm. it did. Um, There were some new developments, not only in this case, because a pretrial hearing has occurred for the third Mm-hmm. trial of AJ Armstrong um but also some new developments happened in um some of the sor- well just one source that we used and it's possible credibility right this is real weird it feels like kind of uncharted territory for us yeah and we don't we just don't know we, we don't really know don't anything, know so we're just kind of putting it on hold until we yeah. just make sure that our sources either are credible or just to see what, I mean, the trial's taking place at the end of February. February so so mm-hmm. um, we might have a more definitive tale to tell. Yeah, I mean, we, with the, I mean, I hope for everyone's sake involved in that case that there is an end to that story at that time. Yeah. Because it's been going on since 2016. Yeah. Um, but it, there's so much up in the air that we, it seems up in the air, but we don't even really know. I know this is very vague. But Leslie, I'm really glad you noticed it because I don't think I would have. (laughs) We definitely do believe in better to be safe than sorry, basically. And Mm -hmm. we would never want to give anybody incorrect information or drag somebody's name through the mud if it was undeserving. Right. Mm -hmm. So while we wait for the air to clear on all of that, we have a spooky and old-timey mystery this week. Okay. Yeah. Today, we will be going back to the world of World War II-era England Mm. to examine the mystery of who put Bella in the witch elm. Man, what a title. I know. Before, like when when it first happened, they called it either the Hagley Wood mystery. Mm -hmm. Some of the the articles call it like the murder tree riddle, which is really good. It had Mm -hmm. some really, it has lots of really good names. But either way, that's the story we're telling. And I know that true crime really lives in current events, but I love old-timey cases. Mm -hmm. Me too. I feel like I would tell old-timey stories forever if I could, but people want to hear new stuff too, so I guess I'll do that. I don't know. We do what we want. That's right. We do what we want. (laughs) 
And I also have discovered this week that I love murder ballads. Yeah. They're so good. Mm-hmm. Especially the old Appalachian ones. Yep. And you're so good at them. Well, thank you. And I, I just want to sing them all forever and be spooky. Mm-hmm. And so many of them I found out this week are based on wild true stories. Right. Right. Which I always thought was so interesting. Me too. The, the one we opened with is called Down in the Willow Garden. Um, and it originated in 19th century Ireland and was first recorded in America in 1927. And is it based on a true story? We actually don't know. Mm. And that's why I chose it, because it's just as mysterious as the tale we have today. Oh, my. The song has been around forever, and there have certainly been more than uh, a few Rose Connollys. But we don't have the records for every single small village in Ireland. Nobody does. And so there is no way to prove whether the story is true or false. And the original singer never states his name. Okay. So we don't even know who we're looking for. Mm. But because these songs have such a history of being true stories, most people assume that something like this did happen. Right. Right. So it's up to you to decide what you think. So interesting. I know. Isn't that crazy? Mm -hmm. Well, you and John did such a good job on it. Thank you. It was really fun. I was glad he was like up for it. Yeah. Good times. So needless to say, there's going to be more music in our future. And I'm really excited about it. I really like to sing, though you'd never know it because Leslie does all the singing over here. Yeah, it happens. It does. (laughs) Um, But I do like it. I just haven't had the opportunity to do it in a while, so I hope it wasn't too rusty. I am feeling a little um, dry. Yeah, a bit dry. Horse, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe even nay is right. Nay. (laughs) Nay, indeed. I may even feel a little tired. Mm. Yeah, I tried. A little little bit. I tried some hot toddies, but they just made me like louder and a little drunk. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I tried some like warm water with lemon, but that is gross and boring. Okay. So I decided to turn back to my favorite cure-all, a cozy dram of validation, a hill worth dying on. Mmm, delicious. Yeah, I love validation. Me too. It tastes so good. Yeah. And lucky for us, our fiends can provide us with some. How? But how, you must be asking yourself. Yes. Every week. Well, I'll tell you. Head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. Ratings and reviews equal attention. Attention equals support. And support equals more and better content for you. But if you just can't wait for more We Would Be Dead in Your Life, well, then lucky for you, you don't have to. <gasps> Thank <How>? goodness. <laughs> but how, you must be asking yourself. <laughs> you can support us over on Patreon. Patreon. Oh, mm. There, for just a few dollars a month, you will gain access to our entire catalog of 30-minute horror movies, our special mini-sos, our weekly after-show post-mortem, which is available in both video and audio formats. Mm-hmm. Maybe you want to see our faces. Maybe you don't. Both are okay. Tell me more, Holly. I will. You'll also get a special gift in the mail from us. Giveaways, merch deals, opportunities to Zoom with us and other patrons, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. (gasps) So much more. Wow. Or like maybe a little more. (laughs) And if all of that is a little too much for you or you love us a whole lot and want to do everything... You can follow us on social media. We are at Would Be Dead Pod anywhere and everywhere you get your content. You can like our posts, share our posts, like and share our posts. 
Leave us a comment, post about your favorite episode. Let us know when you're listening. Tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell the bartender at your local pub who's been there forever and looks like that um, after the doors are locked, they have some crazy stories to tell. Mm-hmm. Like they're like, it's 2 a.m., but you can stay because I like you. And I'm going to close the doors. And if this was, you know, 15 years ago, we're going to smoke <laughs> cigarettes. Tommy. Tommy. All right, Tommy. There is a Tommy. His, yeah. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> All right. He could have it. <laughs> well, okay. Then your friends and Tommy can become fiends and we can all hang out together. I love it. Which will be fun. Yeah. Some good stories to tell. And that's uh, all the introduction I have for us this week. Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? No, not this week. No. All right. On with the show. Our story takes place in Worcestershire, England. Yes, like the sauce that no one can pronounce. (laughs) I know it looks like Worcestershire, but enough people have said it at this point that you you should be able to get it. I'm sorry. (laughs) Come on, guys. I remember always second guessing myself. (laughs) I get, okay. You know, like... That's fair. I just wanted to say Worcestershire, Mm -hmm. but then... Or some people almost get it right and they say Worcestershire. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's Worcestershire. Yeah. So you guys can all say it correctly and then feel superior to everyone else. There you go. It's a nice feeling. Yeah. And we gave that to you. Don't forget it. So our story specifically takes place in a village in Worcestershire, which is a parish. And the village is called Hagley. Hagley is old. Very very old. Mm-hmm. The first mention of it was in 1086 AD. Wow. Yeah. And if you're American, you probably don't even know that that was a year. Right. <laughs> We're like, what? What? People were alive. Nothing then? has been around that long. <laughs> but it has been. And Hagley was. And it had people and livestock and a little church and everything. Wow. And the church is why we know it was around back then because mm-hmm. churches kept records. Now, the lords of the manor, as it were, uh, in Hagley were only uh, actual Hagleys until the year 1411. And then the town nobility bounced around a little while until uh, it was taken in by the full-time residents of the Littleton family. Cute. That's a cute name, right? Mm-hmm. The Littletons were and are part of the British aristocracy and included the Viscountesses of Cobham. Mm-hmm. Cobham, I guess. And in most places, you're going to hear um, that the owner of Hagley Hall, which we talk about Hagley Hall soon, is a man named Lord Cobham. Wow. And it's the same guy. It's a man. His actual name is John Littleton, and he is the Viscount. Oh. So uh, that's important. But they gave him, like, a really cool name. They use Lord for, like, Viscounts yeah. okay. in British um, royalty. Not royalty, nobility right, or whatever right. it is. For whatever reason, like, but- when we covered... Um, Vlad the Impaler. Yeah. He was just a count. Yeah. They just used different stuff. They used Lord for all of, I mean. But didn't they, but they gave him a different name too? Yeah. It was Lord. Yeah. Viscount. It would also be Viscount. I have Cobham, but I thought it was Cobram. Whatever. Right. I don't know why. It's, I guess that's whatever his title is. I okay. didn't, I didn't okay. spend, I didn't rabbit hole British aristocracy that hard. Well, then what are we doing here? I mean, I can for you if you really want to, <laughs> but, um. I just noticed that a lot of people call him Lord this thing. And I'm like, oh, you don't really understand. I like that. Though. Lord this thing. You don't really understand what he is. He's like 
uh, the 12th generation in a line of British nobility. Okay. So he's a big deal. Yeah, he's a big <laughs> he's deal. Not, he's got money. Yeah, he's not just a random dude. He's like okay. a big fucking deal. Yeah. Okay. Oh, anyway. And I just felt this was important. He's the mayor of Hagleytown. <laughs> kind of, yeah. And a family like the Littletons cannot just live in any paltry cottage. And by the 18th century, the castle that once stood in Hagley was nothing more than ruins. And so the Littletons went about building Hagley Hall, a large and sprawling estate, the grounds of which span over 350 acres. Wow. is big. The grounds include the great manor house and in its heyday, a vast park that was known for its serene beauty the world over. Mm. So this park was visited by like United States presidents eventually and um, like, I don't know. Roman religious big time people, not the Pope, okay. but close. Okay, like cardinals. And yeah, there shit. you go. Those okay. people. They came and saw it and they were like, this is great. I feel God. I love it. Okay. Um, so, according to Hagley Park's website, because it has one, quote, the park's pathways led through contrasting sequential atmospheres intended to affect the senses, provoking moods and inspiring the visitor's imagination. Whilst its architectural designed features of temples, seats, urns, a ruined castle, and an obelisk were positioned along the route. So a lot going on. Yeah. A historian and critic Horace Walpole's visit drew the statement, quote, I wore out my eyes with gazing, my feet with climbing, and my tongue and vocabulary with commending. Wow. Two thumbs up. Wow. Enthusiastic <laughs> thumbs up. We need him to review our podcast. We really do. I'm sure he's dead, but still. <laughs> Hagley Hall stood as a crown jewel of the English countryside, quietly housing the Littletons for hundreds of years. But the upkeep of such a mammoth property would soon prove to be quite difficult. And after an enormous house fire in 1925, nothing sinister, just like whoops, a candle or something mm -hmm. and house fire. The Littletons were able to rebuild the stately mansion because the fire happened in the main house. And nobody died, not okay. even dogs. Okay. We're fine. But they had to rebuild it without the top floor, which was originally servants' quarters, because they couldn't, mm. I guess they couldn't afford all the floors. Oh, man. And I guess they could do without servant, like that many servants in 1925. I'm not sure. But after the unbelievable expense of rescuing the family home, the Littletons had little money left to upkeep Hagley Park, like this big stately mm -hmm. park. Well, Weren't we all, were they also going through the Great Depression? Is that that time? Like Was that like happening? Beginning. It's not That's really like, okay, yet. Okay, okay. We're still in the 20s. We haven't yeah. hit it yet. And But because of this, like I said, they couldn't really keep up the grounds. Okay. So the statues and temples began to crumble and moss crept along their shady side. Well-manicured lawns grew wild and unkempt along the winding path, which became blurry and covered over in leaves. The castle ruins were wound in vines, and English bluebells ran wild and free between the winding roots of all the trees, who without any attention or trimming had grown quite wild themselves. Even the obelisk, who stood alone atop Witchbury Hill, looked worn and overlooked against the pale spring sky. Now by April 18th of 1943, when our story begins, Hagley Wood, as it is now called, was overrun by wildlife long forgotten by visitors, and in the unearthly glow of twilight, it looked, for lack of a better word, haunted. Ooh. Yeah. 
It would be years before the Littletons sold off Hagley Park to the village itself so that it could be restored and opened to the public. So, in 1943, the low wooden gates were closed, and entering this strange and magical place was considered trespassing. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never met a kid in my life who could be stopped from entering some really cool woods by a little fence. (laughs) Not I. Not I either. (laughs) Which brings us to our unlikely heroes. Now, why did I give you all of that history? Because it's very important that you understand what these woods are like. Mm -hmm. And they're very once grand, now eerie. Right. Which is a very specific feeling. And it's also important that we understand that at this point in time, they were still on the private property of British aristocracy. Mm -hmm. So trespassing was not just like your neighbor's house. It was like, a big deal. Right. You didn't necessarily tell people that you did Exactly. hmm So, at this point, England was in the throes of World War II, and food was being rationed and money was scarce, so people had taken to finding alternative ways to survive. And so it was that on that April evening, four local boys, all around 13 to 15 years old, and their names were Robert Hall, Thomas Willetts, Bob Farmer, and Fred Payne, were all out hunting rabbits and bird nesting. Now, bird nesting, which sounds like like cuddling down into a nest and taking a nap, but it's not. Bird nesting is taking the eggs from the nests of wild birds. So in practice, it's usually used by scientists to study said birds. And that's the definition you're going to find if you look up the term, but it is also used (laughs) a little less scientifically and a lot less legally Mm -hmm. by people who are very hungry. Right. Are they going to be the best eggs? No, probably not. But are they better than starving? Yes, they probably are. I mean, you might end up with salmonella, but that's a risk you might also be willing to take. Mm -hmm. The boys had all been out that day for the entire day poking around in different little pockets of woods and by streams, looking for something to bring home. And they hadn't been very successful. So they decided they were going to pack it in and go home when the sun began to set. It's like the 1940s version of when the streetlights come on. Right. And they were walking home when they started going past Hagley Wood, which they would have been doing for a while. It's a very big property. But in the rapidly dying light, they saw a flash of feathers. Birds. That place has birds. They couldn't find them anywhere else. Probably eggs in there. Awesome. Great. Smart. Right. Super smart. Now, they hadn't considered going on to this private property before because, as we discussed, that's kind of a scary thing. But now it seemed like a pretty good idea. Mm -hmm. Nobody's there. Nobody is there. It's almost dark. There's not a person in sight, and it's acres and acres and acres of woods before you even get close to the house. Mm-hmm. So they're like, we could, we can get in there, just get some eggs and leave. No big deal. Right. Yeah. So they hopped the low fence and followed the bird. The boys also thought it best to split up so they could cover more ground, and they went off in different directions. Now, I know you're screaming in your head, oh, my God, don't ever split up in the woods in the dark, you idiots. <laughs> But they um they really didn't go far. Like, they could call each other, so. Yeah, I don't, you know, it's really funny. I don't feel that way about men splitting up. It's just women. <laughs> it's just women. <laughs> we have to stay together. You all could be lost in 300 and a, uh, 350 acres of woods. It's fine. Yeah, so. nobody's coming after you. They're only coming after us. <laughs> it's not a lie. <laughs> um, 
So anyway, they all split up in different directions. And a short distance into the wood, just walking a little bit, um, one of the boys, Bob Farmer, in fact, came across a large, strange tree. This tree was a witch elm, but it was unlike any other witch elm they'd ever come across. And these trees are very common there. Well, not as common anymore because of Dutch elm disease, but back then they were super common. Now, witch elms are not so called because of their association with like spooky witches, though we will talk about that later. No, in this case, the word witch spelled W-Y-C-H simply means pliable. Mm -hmm. Now, witch elms are like kind of a bushy tree, like a full tree with a sturdy trunk and lots of slender boughs that house a bunch of whip and branches. And as they age, they can start to lose a lot of their fullness and kind of look weedy and gnarled and a little twisted, kind of like the Whomping Willow. Right. I have a lot of Harry Potter references in this one. Sorry. (laughs) Um, But you know what? Can't we all? We all look a little weedy and gnarled from time to time. That's why we need validation. It's true. It is. (laughs) But this particular witch elm, well, it was on another level. Okay. It did not have delicate boughs and whispery branches. It had a thick and hollow trunk with hundreds of small whip-like branches reaching desperately outward and up towards the sky. Hmm. It's scary looking. At this point, it is April in Worcestershire and leaves are starting to appear. So England's weather is kind of similar to ours in that way. In late April, a witch elm should have already flowered and be adorned with all the seed pods and little early leaves. But this one was not. Okay, so that is weird. It's just this naked hundreds of sticks in a knot. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. It is really creepy. right? Yeah. It's very like true detective esque. Yeah, it is. This witch elm held not a trace of green. Like Lavinia's makeshift hands, its many scratching sticks beckoned desperately outward to anyone who might cross its path, as though it had a secret to tell. A secret that was eating it alive. And if you got that Titus Andronicus reference, we might be in love. (laughs) Just saying. So this tree is an impressive sight, to be sure. It it can evoke a lot of feelings, but it's going to evoke something. Yes. Basically. And some people might have chosen to walk in the other direction, post-haste people like me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because it looks like it's full of ghosts. Yeah. But Bob Farmer had a different take. And that is such a funny name to me for a young person. Right. Bob Farmer. Like. 14-year-old Bob Farmer. Yeah. No. It's like babies named Helen or Linda. Yeah, you're born 45. I'm sorry. That's your lot in life. That's how it goes. But Bob Farmer looked at this tree and said, all right, it's weird and old, but it also looks like the perfect place to build nests. Yep. He was like a one-track mine. That's true. It does, like, especially how this one looks, it looks like a nest already. It does. Okay. Like, there's probably a lot of birds in there. Yeah. The other boys had walked onward in different directions, but Bob approached the tree slowly and climbed up its trunk to look down into the furious tangle of branches. And when he did, he noticed that the entire trunk was hollow. Oh. Yeah. Inside, he saw a little peak of white, and he thought, an egg! I did it! I fucking did it! But he didn't do it, did he? He did something. He reached in as far as he could to move the leaves and debris away. And that's when he discovered that it wasn't an egg at all. It was a skull. Oh, boy. Perhaps from a possum or a fox. But it wasn't, was it? (laughs) 
Listen, okay. opossum or opossum, <laughs> however you want to pronounce it, or fox skull is a really cool treasure, right? Yeah. So as a, you know, teen boy or a fully grown woman would, he wanted to get it out. Yeah. Totally. But he couldn't reach it. Oh, no. So he called his friends to come and help him. Like I said, if he was like, hey, guys, they could hear him and come over. Right. And, and they did. his friends were like, let's just go home. No, they were like, a skull? I want it. Oh, boy. So first they tried to hoist him up. Uh-huh. But that didn't help because it was down in the trees. So yeah. that's really not the angle they were going for. So then they all took turns like, well, let me climb up and look. Yeah. I'm going to climb up and look. Oh, my God. This is so funny. I can picture it. Exactly. You, all these boys being like, no, I'll do it. Let yeah. me pick you up. Finally, let me, see, let me see. Exactly. So finally, one of them climbs up the tree and in the process of climbing up, they snap off a branch and hold it in their hand. And they take the branch like a fishing rod and they poke it down into the cavity of the tree and hook the skull. Skulls have a lot of openings on them and pull it up and out. And as they do so, all the boys <laughs> gather around in a furious cluster to be like, let me see the skull. Really eager to see what was shaping up to be the day's only treasure. So they gathered around and they look, but they discover quickly that it is not a possum, an opossum, or a fox. It was something bigger with different teeth and a clump of hair. This skull, with its missing jawbone and ragged patch of still curly light brown hair, was undeniably human. And I like to imagine that they took it out looked at it, looked at each other, and screamed their faces off. Yeah. <laughs> In my head, they're like, oh my God, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> Just enjoy that image for a minute. It's really fun. Did they call the damn cops? Absolutely not. No. Of course they didn't. This were was four boys with a secret. Of, they were. <laughs> this was not what they had planned for, and they were in way over their heads. Mm-hmm. Not only was stealing bird eggs actually not not all the way legal, mm-hmm. but they were also trespassing on private property, super important private property that they could not get caught on, much less say they found a human skull on. Mm-hmm. Who knows what would happen to them if they told the authorities what they had been doing or what they found? No, 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 no. So they thought we got to have a plan. Mm-hmm. Here's what we're going to do. They're going to talk to Stephen King and he's going to write a story about it. Would be great if that's what <laughs> happened, but no. Okay. They said, we're going to put it back. (laughs) Makes sense. Yeah. They very carefully lower it back into the tree. Yeah. And then they say, nobody speak a word of what we just saw. We are going home. This is so funny because it's just like, this is probably what they do at their, it's just what kids do at home too. Like, Mm -hmm. something goes wrong at home and I broke a thing. Yeah. But we'll put it back Mm -hmm. and maybe mom won't notice. Don't say anything and we might get away with it. We're all in this together. If she comes to you, don't say. You don't don't know what happened. You don't know. If the police come and they're like, hey, did you find a skull? You have to be like, what skull? I don't even know what a skull is. (laughs) What is a skull? I'm just a baby. I'm just a little boy. (laughs) So they agree. Okay. No word. They walk home quietly. Yeah. Freak the fuck out by what they just saw. And they all go to their separate houses. And they wait. And they act like it never happened. Right? No. No, Of course, they couldn't all do that. (laughs) The skull weighed very heavily on them. It's like haunting them all at this point. And just a few hours after they get home, the young... (laughs) Just a 
couple hours, not he even the next it. day. He made it a while. He really did. The youngest boy, Thomas Willits, couldn't couldn't stand it. Tommy. And he, I know little Tommy. He's, see, he later becomes a bartender and, and has then has some a story. <laughs> Good job. Okay. Way to bring it full circle. There you go. So he tells his parents and his parents, of course, call the damn cops because they're like, who the fuck cares if you walked over a fence for a few miles? This is a dead body, probably. Yeah. And they explain the whole outlandish tale to the police and the police go, oh, man, that is a lot. But it's dark and we don't love the idea of poking around in those creepy woods right now. So we're going to go over there in the morning and check it out. Okay? Okay. Yeah, you know, like fresh eyes. Mm -hmm. I think that's fine. So it's already dead. Exactly. And on private property. Right. Now, this might seem irresponsible to a lot of people. I know a lot of people, when they retell this, they're like, why wouldn't you go right away? Anything could happen. And that's true in this day and age. Yeah. Anything could happen. But first of all, this is the cops. You have to understand the information the cops are receiving at this point. Mm -hmm. It's a story that's told to them secondhand by 14 boys. So who knows how true it is? Mm -hmm. Second, the skull might not have been human. Mm-hmm. Kids are dumb. It could have been an animal. They could go out in the woods and be like, I found a human skull. And right. you're like, that's, that's, that's a cat. Yeah. It's fine. Kids are dumb and it's private property, so it's probably not going anywhere. The Viscount's private property. And third, um, maybe we say poking around for a supposedly human skull on the property of some super high-profile people for the light of day, lest we all be shot in the process. Oh, yeah. Okay. Rich people play by their own rules. I get that. Wait, but were there, there were people still living on the property? There was a person, I believe, at that point in time. That is even creepier. I know. Okay. I don't know at what point the transition occurred and the 11th Viscount moved in. The 11th Viscount lived there by himself and had no family. Oh, man. He just, he was probably so bummed. He was like, this sucks. Yeah. It was either him or I his had to dad. to be the 11th. <laughs> I know. His dad, who was the 10th Viscount and had kids, but also had a large military career and was away frequently. And the kids at that point would have all been grown. So okay. no matter how you slice it, there's not a lot of people living on these grounds. Okay. And plus, it's pretty far away. Mm-hmm. But my thought is like, what if you couldn't get a hold of them, but they were asleep and then they saw like your lights poking around on their property? Yeah. They'd be like, open fucking fire they wouldn't i get it i get not wanting to just sneak out there in the middle of the night but the next day bright and early the police did go back okay they followed the boys directions to the old witch elm tree and it was pretty easy to find Mm -hmm. and they looked inside and wouldn't you know those boys were right oh good for them and then some yeah in the hollow cavity of the tree was the detached skull the missing mandible and what seemed to be a complete skeleton. There was also a shoe and remnants of what the deceased had been wearing when they entered the tree. The body was positioned feet first in the tree, so it wasn't like dumped in head first, it was Mm -hmm. standing up basically, and had seemingly been in there for some time. Clearly it's skeletonized, so it's not new. But no other evidence was found at the scene at that time. Now, according to the original article from the Evening Dispatch on Thursday, April 29th, that's when the newspaper article came out, 1943, an article that you have to join the British Newspaper Archive to find, so I get their newsletters now. There you go. Quote, a police sergeant said the tree was about 35 yards from a lane which was accessible to motor traffic and was used a great deal by courting couples. Cute. Which is a cuter way of saying, it was a lover's lane. Mm Mm-hmm. 
The article makes mention also of a, quote, gypsy camp. Big quotes, their words, not mine. Having been discovered out in the same area just a few years prior to this. Now, from this point forward, I will refer to any Romani people in their in the proper way, but that was in the original article, so that's how I have to say it. But basically, what we're saying is there were people out there. It wasn't just those boys. Other people did this same trespassing. And it's not that far from the road. 35 yards is not far. Officers then called Professor J.M. Webster, director of, West, of the West Midlands Forensic Science Laboratory in Birmingham. And the team carefully opened the trunk of the tree and extracted every single piece of the body and anything that came with it. And for those of you who are wondering, no, you cannot visit the tree. They had to take it apart to get the body out. Yeah. Without damaging the body. So I'm, I'm feeling like they like opened and unraveled this giant yeah. knot of tree and then got all of her out. Though Hagley Park is stunning and opening to visitors now. So you can walk through the area if you want. And they have what looks to be a really great restaurant and do all kinds of really cute activities like a pumpkin trail. Okay. Yeah, it's really cute. So if I were in Worcestershire, I would definitely go. <laughs> great. If you do go, tell us how it is. It looks lovely. Patron trip. Yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, the body was meticulously bagged and then brought back to Dr. Webster's laboratory. Yes. Where he was able to reconstruct it nearly completely. And here is what he found. The body was that of a fully grown woman. She was between 18 and 40 years old. Now, there's always this huge age gap because they can't really tell mm -hmm. what kind of adult you are. They could tell she wasn't a child any longer and she was not elderly. And that's anywhere in between is your guess. Though Dr. Webster's best guess is that she was around 35 years old at the time of her death. She was five foot tall and had light brown hair. Now, the height is up to some debate. Some people say later examinations of the body revealed she was a bit shorter, mm -hmm. but only by a couple inches, so it's really all relative. Due to the state of the remains, Dr. Webster estimated that the victim had been deceased for at least 18 months, but no more than three years. And in his mind, he thought her time of death would be somewhere around October of 1941. Okay. Again, you have this window, but in his opinion, this is around when it probably happened. Mm -hmm. So before we get into all of the details of the body, Leslie, why don't you tell us a little bit about the world that she had been living in? What was life like in 1941, England, for a lady? Sure. So since we are in wartime England, mm -hmm. many women in 1941 were finding themselves entering the workforce. Wages were higher because companies needed them to work with all the men being out at war. Right. So women were building weapons and manufacturing munition, ammunition, or um, munition would be ammunition mines and bombs. Um, they were building warships, aircrafts, and tanks. Badass. Yeah. Um, even designing them, which I thought was really cool. That is cool. Yeah. They formed the Land Army, which was initially made up of female farmers who were now growing food for their homeland so that government didn't need to worry about importing food. Right. And then as that needed... As the need for that got bigger, more women were sent to farms to help. Boy. And many women opted to help fight in the war. Though they weren't allowed in combat, like on the front lines, mm -hmm. they were given jobs such as air, air raid wardens, searchlight operators, and gunners. So air raid wardens were responsible for enforcing the blackout, ensuring that no light 
could be seen by enemy bombers. Mm-hmm. They also managed to uh, air raid sirens and directed people to shelters during bomb raidings. Uh, searchlight operators operated searchlights to pick out the German bombers, offering a target for the gunners to try to bring them down. And then the gunners would be away from the combat zone to be hidden to defend against German planes passing by. Many of the women chose to volunteer for this dangerous job and would uh, occupy positions firing at aircraft as they passed overhead towards their targets. Wow. So this, I don't know, I had like this whole vision of almost like Wonder Woman S, where it was just all these women. I love it. <laughs> just like spotlights are going, they got guns in the air, yes! and they're just like taking over. I love uh, it. I, yeah, <laughs> that's great. So good. So as for women's fashion, though, because I know we're going to talk a little bit about fashion in this episode. We are going to talk about fashion. By the end of the 1930s, fashion for British women consisted of a wardrobe built around knee-length dresses, skirts, and blouses, which were colorful and decorated with not only fabric prints, but lots of flounces and surface decorations. Blouses! Blouses. The outfits were topped by jackets, boleros, and cardigans, and jumpers for casual wear. They were underpinned by foundation wear like girdles to give a flat stomach and bras to give an uplifted, quite pointed bust and finished with gloves, stockings, hats, and kitten-heeled court shoes. Cute. Yeah. The silhouette was triangular uh, with a emphasis on the shoulders and a nipped-in waist and a noticeable pointyish bosom. Um, so like an hourglass figure mm-hmm. is, and even if you didn't have an hourglass figure, all these outfits were like designed to m- m- give you one. Yeah. Big broad shoulders. That yeah. Kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Coming into the 1940s fashion, by the end of the war, dresses and skirts stayed, but extras were stripped away and gradually gloves and hats became unavailable or too expensive. Girdles were not very effective because of how they were made. And finally, even stockings were no longer considered an essential everyday item. Clothes were still colorful, but prints became smaller as they were easier to match. And there was far less extra decoration like ruffles, appliques, and embroideries. That was the time where um, women couldn't afford stockings, so they would just draw a line on the back of their legs to look like the seam Mm -hmm. in stockings, which I always think is fun. Utility clothing had also come into fashion. Producing or wearing utility clothing was not required, but manufacturers who made it were offered greater supplies and certain exemptions of their workforce from war work if they agreed to it. And the finished product was cheaper to buy in the shops, so um, which was going to be helpful for a lot of women. Right. And though no one was utterly excited about it, utility clothing was not some drab gray uniform, but dresses such as colorful... The dresses were just as colorful as the usual 1940s fashion and sometimes better quality. So the general idea was to save fabric, and this was done by removing extra details like pocket flaps and ruffles and making skirts a little shorter and tighter, which also could have led to like a lot of women's clothes also not having pockets anymore. (laughs) But even some of the male clothing would have had to deal with that. You're not supposed to have things. Yeah. It's a it's a luxury, not a necessity. Listen, if you have pockets, you can hold money and stuff, and we don't we're not allowed to have those things. That's right. So the printed patterns that women enjoyed were still there, but the scale became smaller to facilitate matching. And utility clothing was introduced across all items in 1940s clothing, including dresses, coats, undergarments, children and baby clothes, and menswear. 
And the government was actually concerned, like they really cared about the quality of these outfits. So they actually were very good quality. So people that had been used to dressing in secondhand clothing or in hand-me-downs, like a little girl might have just Mm -hmm. hand-me-downs, the utility dress might be like the nicest thing that they owned. Love my utility dress. I love it. But it's just funny that they call it that. But they did look like regular clothes, which Mm -hmm. I thought was nice that they did that. But yeah, that was mostly the fashion. Like it was just that silhouette. It'll all come come back into play. Mm -hmm. So in his interview, Dr. Webster went on to say that the body's position in the tree indicated that she had been placed in there involuntarily. Dr. Webster said, quote, he could not imagine anyone getting into the tree voluntarily. The aperture came down from 24 inches to 17 inches. And what that means is that the hole in the tree she was located in got narrower as it went down. So not only would it be very difficult to thread yourself into that needle, but it would not be comfortable. It started out as two foot across, but ended up at just 17 inches, which is quite small, Mm. even for a small lady. Dr. Webster went on to say that it was, quote, probable that the woman was killed within a short distance and put in the tree while the body was still warm or at a greater distance and brought by car. He went on to say in an interview, in a different interview, sorry, that um, because he talked to a few people that, quote, it was an excellent place for the concealment of a murder. And I think it indicates local knowledge. So being able to be like, oh, I know this old abandoned creepy woods. We could definitely hide a body in there. That's that's a local thought. Right. It's not someone passing through town. From the position of the bones the woman was in, she was in like a semi-reclined standing position, quote, she must have been put in before rigor mortis or after it passed. She would either be killed close to the spot or was murdered in the near vicinity so it was possible to convey her to the spot before rigor mortis set in. So he really thinks This was before rigor set Mm -hmm. in. But because rigor mortis has a 24-hour window, it also could have been after. Okay. I don't know how much that makes a difference in this story, but it's noteworthy. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, your body is not so decomposed 24 to 48 hours after dying that you couldn't move it. Right. So just something to add. But, you know during rigor, it would be impossible. You can't like shove a stiff body into that thing. (laughs) So upon the first pass of the crime scene, the investigators found only one hand. Oh, They found the whole skeleton except for one hand, which from how I have read it was separated at the wrist joint. So it's just the hand. It's not a forearm or anything. Mm. They were also initially only able to find one shoe. Further investigation found the hand buried uh, shallowly nearby. Okay. Just like a few steps away. It was very close. And the second shoe was about 100 yards away. Mm. So everything was within the vicinity. Okay. Now, there was no evidence of violence or struggle on any of the bones, though Dr. Webster did conclude that the body's death was um, by homicide. Mm. The precise cause of death, though, is still unknown. Given the lack of injury to the bones, it was more than likely a death by strangulation, suffocation, or poison. Dr. Webster's best guess is that it was asphyxiation, and here is why. Quote, he found part of a garment lodged deep within the cavity of the mouth, and not just any garment. The professor was able to carefully map out what the woman had been wearing by reconstructing what was left of the garments found on the body. 
Wow. Yeah, this is pretty cool. And he described it to the police as, quote, a mustard skirt, blue and yellow striped cardigan, light blue belt, peach-colored taffeta underskirt, and blue crepe-soled shoes, size five and a half. Also recovered among the bones was a cheap rolled gold wedding ring. And rolled gold is an old term for um, like a gold plated. So it would have been a very thin veneer of gold that was rolled around like, say, a copper ring or a nickel ring or something. Okay. Uh, And for a wedding ring, even back then, like that was considerably cheap. People Mm -hmm. were like, well, not great. Right. Also, um, I don't know if you'll mention this, but I looked up five and a half UK shoe Mm -hmm. size and it's six and a half in US. Okay. Just for reference. Yeah. Thank you. So knowing all this, we also know that the fabric found in her mouth was peach colored taffeta. So it would appear that she was killed by someone stuffing a part of her slip down her throat. Okay. Because that's what an underskirt is. It would have either been a half slip or a full slip, depending on what Mm -hmm. she was wearing, which is kind of a rough way to go. And you have to think she would have had to have been restrained in some way or something because Mm -hmm. you can't just stuff a skirt down, half a skirt down somebody's mouth and have them not pull it out. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Authorities also make note of the less than luxurious quality of her clothing more than once as well. And this is interesting because you just commented on the fact that clothing of the day was a little sturdier. Mm -hmm. They said, quote, all the garments were described as poor quality. Okay. So I guess we're not looking at a wealthy woman or maybe even a working woman. So what are we looking at? Okay, so the outfit, it fits what you described as fashion of the day, Mm -hmm. but pared down. So there's no flounces or ruffles. There's none of that. The shirt Mm -hmm. is very, the cardigan is very plain. Mm -hmm. It's stripey, but it's got nothing extra to it. Mm -hmm. It might have had like slightly muttony sleeves, but again, they didn't go very far. Which around, like, if it is 1941 at this point, that's, like, what that would have started to look like. That would have been more normal. Okay. Because that's where they were trying to save money. Got it. And her skirt was just, like, a plain Mm -hmm. B-length or so skirt. Um, And the shoes were sturdy-looking shoes. So that's what we got. She also had, um, like, a chin-to-shoulder-length hair. Okay. And it was light brown. That we definitely know because some of it was still there. <gasps> yeah. I know. When you see the photo of the skull, it's unsettling. Yeah. There are a couple of other little discerning qualities that authorities thought might help figure out who this was. Um, so they did like a little bit of a recreation drawing. It looks kind of like paper dolls. And it shows like a lady with her length hair in the outfit. And uh, from the photos, like I said, her hair looks kind of big, curly or wavy. Mm-hmm. Further examination of the skull also showed some pretty unique dental features as well. First of all, her two front teeth jutted out at a pretty prominent angle and overlapped. Yeah. They like come out of her mouth. They're, they're very prominent. And her lower incisors also overlapped slightly. Now, this would have created a very noticeable smile, to say the least. Like if you met a woman with these teeth, you would remember the teeth. Mm-hmm. Even in World War II England. <laughs> And even though the teeth were a little janky, apparently most of them were in pretty decent condition. Though she did have um, one missing tooth, a lower molar on the right jaw. And it wasn't, it, they specifically say that it had been extracted at least one year before her death. So I'm assuming they know this because it is a clean healing oh, okay. place. Like when you, when a tooth comes out, like you're, 
molars are anchored in your bone. Yeah. So when they come out, they leave like a divot in your bone. And they're either clean or not. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming if you have any kind of dentistry done, it looks better. And also the healing time will show that like part of the bone will kind of heal away. So Mm -hmm. there's more of a dip. So that's how you can tell. It's been a little while. Interesting. Yeah. I know this because I have dental implants. (laughs) Photos of her skull also show that she was missing a tooth on the top, but Um, It's speculated that this could have happened post-mortem at some point in time, though the tooth was never found. I don't think that's super suspicious. This is a skeleton that's been in a tree for a few years. The teeth might have gotten knocked around. Mm -hmm. But some people hang their hat on that. Additional reports say she also may have had an untreated cavity, which is like, also, I don't think super suspicious. Like, there are people nowadays that don't get cavities treated for a long time. Right. One, the dentist is nerve-wracking. And two, I don't know. You just don't want to go. It's also very expensive. I know. If she doesn't have money. Yeah, and especially that. in like a wartime country, yeah. you're not going to think of, oh, better go get all my cavities fixed and my teeth cleaned if, if that's not your priority. So right. that also doesn't strike me as super weird. But it is noteworthy. Maybe she had planned on it. Maybe she did. She had other dentistry done. So Mm -hmm. it would lead me to believe that she was going to take care of it at some point in time. There's definitely a bit of a dental journey there. And in modern times, janky teeth are a goldmine of evidence. Mm -hmm. We have weird teeth. Investigators are like, yes, we can find them. (laughs) Especially if the deceased had been to the dentist. Right. And there there was one more thing that they considered rather notable. According to Dr. Webster, the woman in the tree had um, had born a child. Mm. We don't know if the baby was born alive. We don't know if it was well. We don't know if she cared for it, if it was adopted out. Who? We don't know anything about this. We only know that a pathologist saw her skeleton and surmised that she had given birth. And I want to make it clear that they said given birth, not had been pregnant. Right. Because these two things are different. Mm-hmm. So because they say it is likely that she had a child, here is what the pathologist likely saw. And this is from a medical text. I'll find the source for you guys if you want to read the whole article. Quote, during childbirth, the pubic bones separate to allow an infant to pass through the birth canal. The ligaments connecting to the pubic bone must stretch. They can tear and cause bleeding where they attach to the bone. Later, bone remodeling at these sites can leave small, circular, or linear grooves on the inside surface of the pubic bones. And these paturition pits show that a female has given birth vaginally. So there is Mm -hmm. physical markers that will show you have given birth a certain way. Yeah. Okay, fine. I'm going to trust them. Now, this is not a super exact science. Of course, there are other things that can cause this kind of pitting, but birth is overwhelmingly the most likely cause. Right. It's not like horseback riding the same too. Yeah, or you know, any kind of accident where you separate those ligaments and it causes the little pits there. But like, Mm -hmm. it's not like breaking your, quote unquote, breaking your hymen. It's like stretching out by giving birth. Yeah. But we don't know exactly what evidence of birth Dr. Webster actually reported. I can only imagine that that's what it was because there's nothing else that would indicate she definitely gave birth and wasn't just pregnant at some point in time. So anyway. That's that's the info. And if it's true, somewhere out there in the world, the woman found in the tree has or had a baby, which is interesting. Mm. 
Investigators took all of this information and went out into the world with it. And they really did. Descriptions and illustrations of the body, her clothing, and unique set of teeth, as well as projections of what she looked like, and photos of the tree and skull were printed in all the local papers. Police went around the country questioning hundreds of dentists, showing them photos of the teeth to see if any of them had treated a woman with the very same crooked smile, but none of them recognized her. The police checked all missing persons reports and the reports of all the women who had gone missing during recent air raids, and nothing matched. They also checked the make and model of the shoe they found. Well, they eventually found both shoes. And the police could trace their specific make and dye lot to a market in Dudley, which is just 28.9 miles from the spot where she was found. Police could account for all but a couple pairs of these specific shoes from this specific market so they could figure out who bought them. Yeah. And apparently one of the mystery buyers, one of the few people they couldn't find, was the woman who ended up in this tree. Oh. Or at least she was with those shoes. Though no one in the market stall could recall seeing anyone who fit her description. But maybe someone bought them for her. There is also a theory that um, they're not her shoes that they had perhaps been tossed into the pit by whoever committed this crime so as to conceal, like, you know, footprints or blood evidence or something. Well, there was no blood evidence, so I guess only footprints. Because they were, like you said, a six and a half, our, mm-hmm. our sizes, and she was like a teeny little lady. Yeah. I mean, that's not out of I know. the question. So I remember hearing that, that people were like, that's way too it's large. It's not way too large. But I'm, I'm five feet, and I have a seven and a half shoe. Yeah, so it's not over... And my feet are tiny. Yeah, you have little feet. So I don't understand where they were like, it's way too large for it to have a six and a half. I thought that that was like accurate. Yeah, yeah, me too. I mean, I guess maybe if you you stretch the projection of her height down to 4'10". But still, yeah. Like, because if I'm I'm five... Yeah. And you go to four... Yeah, like a whole inch less would be appropriate. Yeah, so they could easily have just been her shoes. I mean, I guess some people want to believe that they're more of a clue or that like nobody in that market saw her and just forgot or whatever or wasn't saying something. I don't know, but I don't. I just, I yeah, that one didn't like bother me. It doesn't bother me either. It could be hers. A lot of this doesn't, the missing tooth, the missing hand. Also, don't they have her foot? Yeah. Can't they be like, this is her foot size? That's a very good point. Unless they, like, didn't make that comparison until later. I have no idea. But, yeah, some people think they're not her shoes. Okay, okay. I feel like that was, like, a a problem later on versus definite possibility. day. Like, day of, they were like, yeah, those are Those are her shoes. It was just, like, (laughs) two century, two decades later, they were like, no. Maybe not. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. feet. (laughs) Look at her giant feet on a little body. (laughs) She's so weird. (laughs) Those teeth. (laughs) No. <laughs> those janky teeth. <laughs> Calm down, people. Yeah. But honestly, I have to commend the police work on this case. It's wartime in mm-hmm. the early 40s, and they were, they were out there doing it. A lot yeah. of times when we find a missing woman case or like a just a found body case that's a woman, police are like, uh, who gives a fuck? Right. <laughs> like, nobody cares. Yeah. But they did, and they looked for her hard, and nothing was turning up. Mm-hmm. But then... Just after Christmas, 1943, messages began to appear written in chalk on walls. Mm -hmm. The first was on a wall in Upper Dean Street in Birmingham, and it read, Who put Lubella down the witch elm? Dash, Hagley Wood. 
After that, several others quickly appeared on local buildings that simply said Hagley Wood or Hagley Wood Bella. And finally, the message was condensed into who put Bella in the witch elm years later, as it was painted on the only thing that may have seen exactly what happened, the stately obelisk of Hagley Park. Mm. So that message remained on this obelisk from like the 70s until very recently where it went and just disappeared. Okay. So I don't know who took it off. Interesting. But they did. But, but we seem to have a name. Yeah. Right? Someone knows who she was. Or someone has a terrible sense of humor. People are shitty. Or they were Italian. Who put a Bella down? She's Bella, yeah. yeah. Who knows? But why aren't they speaking out? Why won't they tell police? Uh, that's that girl Bella that I know. Who put her in that tree? And what the hell is happening? Right. Why so cryptic? There are reasons. So police take this, their only lead, and run with it. They start looking for Bellas. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then picking up on the messages linked to the Hagley Woods skeleton, local newspapers start to print the headline, Do You Know Bella? Mm. And they're hoping like, maybe someone will see the newspaper, but not talk to the police and they'll call us first. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Worth a shot. Yeah. But no reply. Okay. Similar messages appeared on a five-bar gate in Hahn and on a wall in Wolverhampton. And both of these happened in August of 1949, nine months after the originals. And both messages read, Hagley Wood, Lubella was opposite Rose and Crown, Hasbury. Now, this is pretty specific. Right. The Rose and Crown pub in Hasbury is still there today. You can go there. It looks super cool and full of delicious food, as everything in this case apparently is. But as far as what was opposite of it, I cannot rightly tell you. It's a pretty densely populated area with lots of businesses and apartments and stuff like that. And these specific messages have largely been thought to be a red herring. Mm. People think that that pinpointed specific thing was somebody trying to mess with people. Another one of the messages actually provided a specific address where they said you could find this Lubella person. But when the police traced it, they found that a family had been living in that house for the past 56 years. And they didn't have any Bellas. They didn't know any Bellas. They didn't know what the hell anybody was talking about. Were they missing somebody? Was someone not part of their family anymore? I don't know. But the police quickly were like, you did, you're fine. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? She, maybe she was their family, dirty family secret. Mm-hmm. Possible. <laughs> I don't know. They're better at keeping secrets than those boys. Yeah, those boys are shit at it. Now, this is where things start to take like a crazy turn. Because at this point, everyone and their brother begins to speculate like crazy who this Bella person could be, obviously, and what might have happened to her. And I'm talking about this as though it has stopped happening. It hasn't. People are still constantly talking Mm -hmm. about who she could have been and what happened to her. There is still an active case working 70 years later. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of theories, though. And uh, let's go, we're going to go over all of the major ones and how they came to be and just how much water they hold. And then we can talk about which, if any, we think are correct. Okay. I definitely think one of them is correct. Actually, I think a combination of two of them is correct. First, let's get the most ridiculous one out of the way. Mm. Of fucking course, someone immediately thought it was witchcraft. Yes. Obviously. (laughs) I'm going to go by this one real quick because it's nuts and frankly, an affront to the Romani people. Remember when the newspaper printed that Bella's tree was just a short distance from an old Romani traveler campsite? Yeah. Yeah, well, anthropologist and archaeologist Margaret Murray sure did too. She proposed 
that the fact that one of Bella's hands had been removed and was found, quote, 13 paces from the body was an indication that she had been a Romani person and was sacrificed by her own people in a ritual called the Hand of Glory. Yes, the Hands of Manos. Mm. <laughs> now, before I get into this, I should tell you that the hand, like I said, was, was found buried like in a little shallow hole, mm -hmm. not that far away. And it was decomposed into like little pieces. It right. was not like a mummified hand. It was like the bones of the hand, like the right. rest of the body. Like most likely an animal. Probably. Yeah, I'll, I'll get there in okay. a minute. But yeah, exactly. So why would this woman think she had been a, a, a participant in this ritual? Oh, I don't know. But she also focused her research on something she called the, quote, witch cult hypothesis, which is a theory that the witch trials of early modern Christendom were an attempt to extinguish a surviving pre-Christian pagan religion devoted to a horned god. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> her theories were not very popular. No. Shocking, right? I know. But she is called the mother of Wicca. Okay. Yeah, so she did kind of like really campaign for earth-based religion. She just had some wild beliefs as mm. well. From what I can see, Old Marge was a lovable feminist old kook. Mm -hmm. So let's look at this ritual she is thinking might have happened and kind of downplay a little bit how racist it is that she was immediately like, that's a Romani person. Right. Because it also was a different time when people were happily a lot more racist. Mm -hmm. So the hand of glory is the dried and pickled hand of a hanged man, usually a man, I guess it could be a lady, often specified as being the left hand or in Latin sinister hand. Mm -hmm. Or if the person was hanged for murder, it was the hand that did the deed. Ugh. Yeah, so after they're hanged for their crime, the hand is removed. Old European beliefs attribute great powers to a hand of glory, combined with a candle made from the fat from the corpse of the same malefactor who died on the gallows. So nice. you boil down their fat and you add it to the hand and you put wicks in the fingertips or you make it like in the little palm of their hand like they're holding a candle. Also okay. very cute. Two different ways to design it. Pick your way. Yeah. It's creative. I like it. Creative, right? See, I thought it was like a candle stick and the hand wrapped around it like held it it can be okay, okay. It's, it's depicted a lot of ways Different it would be ways. hard to fashion it into holding a candle because yeah. it's a dead hand yeah but a lot of times it's pictured like palm up with the candle in the palm okay and sometimes it's like the wax is on the hand and there's like a wick in the fingertips like get creative with it exactly okay. Do you fit, pick your way it's okay. not pick your hand of glory yeah it's fine I, I like to think the hand of glory picks me yeah you don't want it to so the candle so made, lighted, and placed as if in a candlestick, like you said, in the hand of glory, would have rendered motionless all people to whom it was presented. So it makes everybody stay still. Okay. The process for preparing the hand and the candle are described in 18th century documents uh, with certain steps disputed due to difficulty in properly translating the phrases from that era. But would you like to hear the description? I sure would. Of course you would. Take the right or left hand of a felon who is hanging from a gibbet. Again, dealer's choice, whatever you want, beside a highway. So this specifically says hanging in a gibbet beside a highway. Okay. Wrap it in part of a funeral pall and so wrapped, squeeze it well. Mm. Then put it into an earthenware vessel with zimet, niter, salt, and long peppers. Okay. The whole thing well powdered. So these are like preservatives. Mm -hmm. Leave it in the vessel for a fortnight two weeks, then take it out and expose it to full sunlight during the dog days 
until it becomes quite dry. So you're mummifying this thing. Right. If the sun is not strong enough, put it in an oven with fern and vervin. Next, make a candle from the fat of a gibbeted felon, virgin wax, sesame, and pony. And use the hand of glory as a candlestick to hold this candle when lighted. And then, those in every place in which you go with this baneful instrument shall remain motionless. Wow. Dramatic. Yeah. I like that there's a lot of options, though. Yeah, in exactly. This you want to be able to, like, feel this process yeah. for yourself. Yeah. But why would you want such a thing? I don't know. It's cool and weird, and you would probably keep unwanted visitors out of your house with it. But there are also some very random and mid-level desirable reasons for it, too. Like, you know, it renders everybody motionless, kind of like in Harry Potter terms, petrificus totalis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The candle also could only be put out with milk. So I guess it is uh, impervious to wind or people. And water. Yeah, and water and people so annoyingly. Like it could rain and it would still yeah. go. Okay. So you got like super candle. Okay. Which is nice. I mean, it's not like I would murder people for it nice, but it's nice. Yeah. In another version, the hair of the dead man is used as the wick and the candle in this way. Like if you make it like this, it would only give light to the holder. So also nobody else can light your super candle but you. Okay. The Hand of Glory has also uh, purportedly had the power to unlock any door it came across. Mm. This is our Harry Potter terms, Alohomora. Now, this is, this is a very real and very weird and fun superstition. Mm -hmm. People 100% did this. It is not myth. It is true. But it's not Romani. <laughs> it's not specific to their, their people at all. The legend has incredibly ancient roots in a lot of historical texts and stuff, but most of the examples of it actually happening are straight up England. They're all from England. Right. Well, my guess is that this is where this woman would have heard about it. And then just being racist just is like, just like, it was it's the gypsies. All, yeah, yeah, like gypsies, witches, they're yeah. all the same. Sure. Yeah, that's, that's a viable option. Yeah. In fact, the only surviving real honest to goodness hand of glory, there still is one, is mm. in a museum in England. It's in the Whitby Museum. So you can still see it. And it is weird. So now I also want to go there. Yeah. So was Bella a source of a hand of glory? No, she was not. Her hand wasn't found like mummified whole and it wasn't a candle. Right. And if they had made her hand into a hand of glory, there is absolutely no way anyone would have just left it in the woods. It is a highly prized object. You make a hand of glory because you want to have a hand of glory, not because you want to leave it 13 paces away in the woods. Mm-hmm. Also, she would have been guilty of a crime. And there is no record or indication of that because it's got to be a criminal, right? Mm -hmm. But the place where Bella was found is also covered in yew trees and belladonna. And everyone thinks that makes it a witch wonderland. But really, it just makes it England. Right. They're everywhere. There's a lot of those <laughs> things about. My yard has yew trees and eastern nightshade, which is a cousin of belladonna. So um, do not fuck with me. There you go. Make you a hand of glory. Let's do it. All right. <laughs> In all likelihood, Bella's hand ended up a short distance away from the rest of her because an animal took it. Yeah. Just like you said, Hagleywood is home to a whole host of birds of prey, as well as foxes, martens, badgers, wildcats, and stoats. Fuck yeah, Clarence. My guy carried off that hand of glory and was all powerful for a minute. <laughs> and if you guys don't know who Clarence is, I will put a photo of him in the photo suite. He is my stuffed stoat. I love it. 
stuffed as in taxidermy and not as in a plushie. His face is fixed in a permanently judgy, bitchy scowl. And he is standing on his hind legs so he can see your whole outfit and disapprove of it. I dress him up for every holiday and season. He is the greatest. And next Halloween, we have to make him a fake hand of glory. There you go. Obviously. Okay. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. Clarence Clarence got to make a guest appearance. Yeah. Pretty good. Okay. Now, could she have been, aside, hand of glory aside, let's, let's take that out of it. Mm-hmm. Could she have been a Romani traveler? Pro- maybe. She, mm-hmm. she could have been anything. But likely not, just based on like the description of her and stuff. Yeah. But it would explain why she could have been hiding in the woods. Because the Nazis wiped out 50% of the Roma people in Europe. They were treated almost exactly the same as the Jews in the time of World War II. And so it stands to reason that if someone knew her, they might not want to give themselves up. Mm-hmm. Because that might mean they were also in hiding. Or that they had hidden her or that they had seen her and not reported her. There are a lot of reasons why that might right. not be one as something you want to admit publicly to. Mm-hmm. So that's, I, I guess it's possible. And it could explain why no one ever claimed her even years and years after the war was over. There's a good chance that if she was a Roma person, her family could have been completely annihilated. Mm-hmm. Nobody could be left. So sad. It's really sad. Continuing with the theory that she was a casualty of war, some people believe that Bella was a German spy. Mm. And my favorite piece of evidence, one that I have kept from you, and I don't know if you read it anywhere because I only found it in one place and I love it, is that the name Lou Bella also could have been misread and that it could have actually said Rubella, which is German measles. Mm. This would have been subtly referring to her in like code speak as not a woman named Bella, but a German disease invading, a.k.a. a spy. Okay. That I love. Okay, okay. Right. Yeah. But frankly, I have been talking for long enough. Leslie, why don't you tell us about this one? All right, so one of my theories, so this theory comes from an MI5 declassified file about a German spy they had interrogated named Joseph Jacobs. Oh, boy, this is like, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Official and spy I oh, couldn't, yeah. I couldn't fix that word to make it what I wanted. <laughs> Continue. So Joseph was in this like same area and had been there uh, with other German spies to learn about the munition factories, which there had been a few. In, okay. In Joseph's file, like so when they got him, there was a woman, um, a photo of a woman that they had confiscated from him. Okay. And Joseph told the men, because they were like, well, who's this? Who is this pretty lady? Mm-hmm. Huh? So Joseph had told them that it was a photo of his lover, a woman named Clara uh, Burrell, I think is how you pronounce it, who was a cabaret singer and an actress back in Germany. She's pretty. I saw her pictures. Mm -hmm. She was supposed to uh, parachute to, like in short, she was supposed to parachute to the Midlands after they had made radio contact. And, but she never made it. And he feared that she had possibly died on her way in. What a crazy... So that is like one. Okay. So initially I wrote this down like before I got here and Mm -hmm. then read this other article. So Mm -hmm. this is how a lot of people describe that specific situation. Another one just to be, this one makes a little bit more sense to me is that um, it was like Clara and Joseph were connected. Yes. And there is a chance that Clara might have 
been being trained to be a spy. Mm -hmm. Um, And with her, the world that she was in, it would be like a good cover for her. She Mm -hmm. would be able to travel the world and kind of get intel on things that she needed. Um, And Joseph and his his like spy group were in Mm -hmm. this area. And whenever their um, their mission was complete, Mm -hmm. Claire was supposed to come and like come after him and like get get him out, I think. But he obviously had been captured and never made contact with her. So he believed, I don't think she ever got here because she never heard from me. Right. But she still could have come after him because especially if she loved him, you don't know. Um, So either way, the belief is that she parachuted out and then maybe died that way and just, I guess, landed. Just bullseyed into that tree. Perfectly landed. Yeah. Like her parachute must have And then she was like, let me eat my skirt because I'm hungry. Yeah. She she perfectly landed into this hollow of a tree mm-hmm. and then died on impact without her legs shattering. And then the chute must have just gone poof. Into thin air. Into thin air. Gone. And with little pieces into her mouth. And that just like makes God, perfect it sense. It makes a lot of sense. <sighs> yeah. So, uh, and a lot of people think that this woman makes sense because Clara Burrell can also, just on stage, people saying her name over and over again. And she can was also a real person. She was a real 100%. person. You could find her. It kind of sounds like Clara Bella. Yeah. So the name Bella has some legs to stand Perfect, on. Perfect. Yeah. He could have also called her Bella. I don't know. He could have. And after this point in time, there are no gamophone recordings, live performances, or movie appearances in her name after 1941. Oh, shit. Right? So this theory was very interesting to me. And I had to, it led me into checking on how common malfunctioning parachutes is, especially even at <laughs> like this time. Yeah. But uh, people, the both armies, all the armies were very proud of Every the parachute army. technology that they had and they were using it all the time. Oh boy. Um, and really the only main casualties that were happening were when like a ton of people were jumping out of the planes at the same time. But in this Which specific case. Which feels unsafe. Right. Because especially if they're, if they're trying to go at different times, you know, mm-hmm. space out time still like you don't know. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know the logistics, but it but seems I can difficult. see it. But this would have just been Clara jumping out of the plane. Yeah. Getting to her lover. Yeah. So even back in 1941, it was pretty low for a parachute to malfunction, but still possible. According to the USPA, which collects and publishes skydiving accident statistics, about one in every 1,000 parachutes will experience a malfunction so significant that actually requires the use of the reserve parachute. Oh, boy. So remember, there's like usually two parachutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If the chute does fail, so, yeah, if the chute does fail, you can use your reserve and then you're usually fine. You're and not it, dead in a tree. Yeah, Got exactly. It. And it's almost like simultaneous. Like, you'll know right away. You'll get the other chute up and... You've not Lord of yeah. the Flies your way to death. I also learned that, like, skydivers, so when you go skydiving mm-hmm. and, you know, you're, like, on the tandem one. Yeah. it It's rare, again, because it's, like, one in 100,000 yeah. that that first one will go. But if it, whenever it has happened, people would never know because the the reserve parachute just goes up right away they almost they so never your chute could fail you just don't know you it you just didn't real well no like the the sorry so the skydiver the experienced mm-hmm. one the instructor yeah w- is aware that 
yeah. it malfunction and he'll he'll immediately the, get the other reserve. But you up. clinging but to them for clinging. life does not know. Yeah. Okay. It's just like, this is great. And then you land and you just never knew that oh, it happened. Boy. I mean, they might tell you after you land, but. I have heard that one is round and one is square. Yeah. Okay. So if like you see, end up with the round one. Yeah, you don't know, though. Bad shit happens. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if the shoot does fail, survivor, survival rate is minimal but possible. Uh, you want to look for swamps, trees, and snow to, like, try Cushion to your aim yourself ball. towards. Mm-hmm. And you want to stay clear of the land and water since water would feel like concrete Oof. on impact. If you don't see swamps, trees, or snow, aim for a roof or bus as they absorb some of the impact. Aim for a bus. Yeah. That's easy. So there's like, I think it's called tracking. So it's like how you have yeah. to like lie down. Once you pick your spot, work on staying calm <laughs> and then sure. try to land on the balls of your feet. So like this is like so weird to me because I wouldn't have thought, I would have thought like I need to like roll somehow. Pick a cheek like when you fall yeah. on roller skates. Yeah, yeah. So they want you to land on the balls of your feet, like as softly so as you, you shatter can. your ankles. Got it. Yeah. While protecting your head. So like your fingers mm-hmm. would be interlaced behind your head. Um, your legs will absorb most of the force for sure fracturing them, but it will keep you alive. You're not dead. You are messed up, yeah. but you're not dead. Got and it. protecting the head with your hands behind them will ensure that if you fall back, you won't die from <laughs> your like head hands trauma. Are crushed. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a large portion of why people die from like falling from like a high mm-hmm. point is because they don't protect their head. And that's actually what kills them. It's not even the fall. I hate all of this. Yeah. So again, Bella or Clara would have had, that would have been the weirdest. There's, an, I don't know it how. have been like threading a needle. That's, that's yeah. wild. I just don't know how she could have perfectly softly landed into this like. But also, she definitely didn't. Right. So it's fine. Right. There would have been, because she was clearly just placed in there. Well, they also find Clara's death certificate later. She did not well, yes. die that way. Okay. So going back, even though this is like a weird theory, it was proven wrong, but not solidly until 2016. Yeah. So we were able to uncover that Clara Burrell was a German cabaret singer and actress, but her death records have her dying in Berlin in December of 1942. She was also said to be closer to six feet tall while while Arbella was, was only tiny. five feet. <laughs> yes. And she would have died of, um, I think it was like a respiratory, like some, it was almost like a poison, not like poisoning, but she just had, she just, her heart gave out. It wasn't good. I'll look that up later, okay. but. We'll go into that. But that explains why she didn't make any movies after 1941. Exactly. She just got sick and was getting sicker. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But she absolutely was in a, she she was probably the mistress of Joseph because he was married. Yeah, I believe that. There's a, Mm -hmm. there's like a letter from him to her that is in in the archives. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's there. Yeah. I think it's a, she, on the back of the photo, it read, my dear, I love you forever. You're Clara. But There's then like it a says long letter Clara from Lindo. him. There's like a big yeah. long letter from him to her too. Yeah, but but yeah, that was it. That's really it. Yeah, so it, def- it definitely was not mm-hmm. her. I mean, could it have been a German spy? Could Bella be a German spy that knew too much and was then just kind of executed on the spot so that she didn't say anything? Sure, absolutely. So here's my issue with this though, because unless it was just another German that killed her mm-hmm. and didn't want to say anything, mm-hmm. If she was a German spy and somebody in England killed yeah. her, they would have, 
it wouldn't have been illegal. She was a German spy. Right. They could have they could have been like, I killed this woman because she was a spy. They've been like, OK, cool. Yeah, I think the theory is that it was like sympathizers because she knew too much and they were afraid she was going to tell. And so they yeah, ended up okay. killing her. Okay. Again, there's no grounds on this one. It's just something mm-hmm. people are like, well, there was a bunch of air raids. It was World War II. Spies were about. It's mm-hmm. possible. And anything is possible because we don't know the right answer. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. sure. Okay. Yeah. We'll give it a maybe. But and that story is a definite no. <laughs> right, right. And Joseph Jacobs is just a little side note. He's interesting because he's very interesting. He was the last person executed in the Tower of London. So And he had that picture and the letter to her and stuff. So like he definitely had a tie to her. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's definitely all true. People just it was, went for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Okay. What do you what else do you have? So there's two final theories and they are the most likely candidates. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are other theories, but they are they hold absolutely no weight. So there's really no point in going over right. any of them. And one is that Bella was a local sex worker. In 1944, a Birmingham sex worker came to the police to report that her friend, another sex worker that went by the name Bella, had gone missing three years prior. Mm, okay. So she sees the Bella messages, hears about the skeleton. She's like, my friend, Bella, who was a sex worker, disappeared around the time that you're saying she could have died. She also went on to say that Bella had worked on Hagley Road and disappeared one night while in search of customers, and they never heard from her again. It is theorized that she was killed by a client who may have also been an American GI, although I think they think that because they're just like, "Mm, stupid American. Right. Or because they're not local and they they left immediately afterwards Mm -hmm. and nobody recognized them. That's possible too. And this theory, while kind of vague, does check a lot of boxes. First of all, the original graffiti was found later to have been done with chalk that police traced back to a local pub. Okay. This gives weight to the theory that Bella was local and that the writer knew her but didn't want to admit to it. And perhaps the person who wrote this graffiti was a client, mm. someone who cared about her but had, you know, solicited her on more than one occasion. Or perhaps he was somebody who had a wife and children and couldn't admit to that. Or maybe the person who wrote this graffiti was a fellow sex worker and did not wish to be caught by police or by association be harmed in any way. In any case, this scenario would explain the fact that no one was looking for her. We know that a lot of times sex workers are considered the less dead. And yet everyone was looking for her. Mm -hmm. Such a job would have likely resulted also at this point in time in a child at some one point in time or another. And... The job could have also been carried out by a person who could not afford nice clothing or a lot of dental work. All of it makes sense in a general way. This this theory right. to me does make sense. Okay. It's sad and awful, mm-hmm. but it makes sense. Now, I'll save the best for last. We have one more confession, mm-hmm. and it is a wild ride. It comes from a woman named Una Massa though she did not want to be identified by her real name at first. Let me explain. On November 18, 1953, a woman who called herself Anna wrote a letter to the quester. So I'm guessing this is like the person who's working on this case. Mm -hmm. And her return address was in Calvary. Now this letter reads as follows. November 18, 1953. My dear quester, if I'm pronouncing this wrong, you guys can tell me. It's spelled Q-U-A-E-S-T-O-R. My guess is Quester. Finish your articles, re the witch elm crime, by all means. They are interesting to your readers, but you will never solve the mystery. 
The one person who could give the answer is now beyond the jurisdiction of earthly courts. The affair is closed and involves no witches, black magic, or moonlight rites. Much as I hate having to use a nom de plume, I think you would appreciate if you knew me. The only clues I can give you are that the person responsible for the crime died insane in 1942, and the victim was Dutch and arrived illegally in England in about 1941. I have no wish to recall anymore. Now, there's one more paragraph to this letter. It's really hard to read. Mm. It's not really transcribed anywhere, and you can see the original letter. I'll, I'll share pictures of it, but it's like really scrawly, cursive penmanship. To me, it looks like it says, I am no prancer. What happened to our mutual friend, name I cannot decipher, the phrase what happened to our mutual friend is pretty clear. And then it says, did he return? And then there's more words that I've never seen before, but it is all scribbled out with pencil. So that leads me to believe, considering this is a police report, not that they didn't want people to see it, because you can still read it, but that it was totally invalid. Mm. And it didn't bear any kind of weight to the case. Yours sincerely, Anna. On November 21st, the editor of The Express and star B.E. Whitaker sent Anna's letter to S. In S. Inight, the assistant chief constable uh, at police headquarters in Worcester. And... This guy made a request for Anna to step forward and help them solve this heinous crime. So we like told all the newspapers about this. Mm -hmm. It was like, we got this letter. This person says this thing. We need to find her. Right. So find Anna. Then on December 3rd, 1953, Anna finally sent another letter to the Quester, which reads as follows. Dear Quester, had so much publicity not been given to Anna, I would have contacted you before. Salty. I will meet you and officers of the Worcestershire CID at the Dick Whittington. It is beyond the stew pony from Wolverhampton tomorrow night, Friday, at about 8.30 p.m. And maybe I can help them with their investigations if they are still interested, subject to my conditions to which I think they will agree. You, of course, will not advertise this meeting in your press. You have had many wild goose chases during the last few days. Maybe this will be the last or the beginning of many. Who knows? At the Whittington, they have a bar on the left of the entrance called the Priest's Hole. Ugh. Hate it. Sincerely, Anna. And so to the Priest's Hole they did go. <laughs> Even though it sounds like a real live nightmare. And much to everyone's surprise, there was Anna. Oh. Yeah. She showed up, which nobody really thought she was going to, but she did. She was sitting there waiting there for them. But of course, her real name wasn't Anna. It was Una Ella Hainsworth. And here is the direct statement that she made to the police. Quote, I was married to Jack Mossop in 1932, and we went to live at the Bridge House, Wamborn. At that time, he was studying to be a surveyor. The only child of our marriage was born in 1932, and he was christened Julian. And at the present time, he is somewhere in America. Now, a footnote on Julian. Julian is also listed, for reasons we cannot figure out, as a suspect in this crime. Mm. When it happened, he would have been nine. Not right. 100% sure why, but he also was not raised by his parents. He was raised by his grandparents. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't even around. Okay. But it is curious. Back to the quotation. My husband joined the AST in 1937 as a pilot officer and was stationed at Campbell near Southampton. In 1938, he commenced work for the Armstrong Siddeley Works in Coventry, and subsequently he went to work at the Standard Aero Works in Coventry on Banner Lane. It was in 1940 that a man named Van Ralt came to our house 
on number 39 Barrow Road in Kenilworth. I believe this man was Dutch, and as far as I know, he had no particular job, and I have a suspicion that he was engaged on some work that he did not wish to talk about. But in my opinion, it might have been that he was a spy, for he had plenty of money, and there were times that my husband appeared to have plenty of money after meeting him. Mm. So they were doing some underhanded business together, basically, her okay. husband and Ben Rolt. It was either in March or April of 1941 that my husband came home and was noticeably white and agitated. This was about 1 a.m. in the morning, and he asked me for a drink. I made a comment that I thought he had had enough as he had been out all day, but I gave him a drink. He then said he had been to the Littleton Arms with Van Ralt, which is a pub in, in like, close to where they found the body, actually. And the, quote, Dutch piece, as she had got awkward. So they refer to this girl as the Dutch piece. Okay. Gross. Back to the police statement. My husband was driving the car, which belonged to Van Ralt. They would later discover that this car was like, they owned it together. Mm-hmm. Van Ralt and, or no, not Van Ralt, um, another guy and, um, and her husband. Mm-hmm. But he okay. said, I guess he was letting Van Ralt use it, whatever. She got in beside him, the Dutch piece. Van Ralt was in the back and then she fell over towards my husband. And he said to Van Rolt that she had passed out. Van Rolt told him they were to draw where they were to drive to, and they went to a wood, stuck her in a hollow tree. Van Rolt said she would come to her senses the following morning, and as far as I know, my husband came home. He came home in Van Rolt's car, which was a rover. I lived in Kenilworth until December 1941, and between April and December, my husband appeared very jumpy and it was noticeable that he had more drink than usual and appeared to have more money to spend. He was nearly always away from work, and this led to my suspicion that in some way he was obtaining money and may have been meeting Van Rolt. I should mention that my husband had an old standard car of his own and used to go off for days on end, and I did not know where he was. So I guess that's the car that he shares with the Mm -hmm. other guy, and this car was Van Rolt. Sorry. It's confusing. Yep. When I left my husband in December of 1941, I went to Henley in Arden, and we lived there for 10 years. We lived at Nuthurst House, truly near Henley in Arden, and we finally returned in 1951 to Kenilworth and came to our present address in August 1953. I saw my first husband, Jack Mossop, at Kenilworth on three occasions after I was forced to leave him in December of 1941 and tried to get my possessions, including furniture, from the house And on one of these occasions, it would be the last time I saw him. He told me what I thought at first was a further story to put me off. And it was as follows, that he thought he was losing his mind. And as he kept seeing the woman in the tree, and she was leering at him, he held his head in his hands and said, It is getting on my nerves. I am going crazy. It was about June 1942 when I heard he had been taken to the mental hospital at Stafford, where he died in August of 1942. I was not informed of his death at the time, and I did not attend the funeral because of this. This first I knew was when my present husband told me that an application had been made at the works, claiming money that was due to him, and sending a doctor's certificate. I had no knowledge whatever of the Hagley murder until an article appeared in the Express and Star newspaper. Neither had I read anything before which could in any way be connected with the incident I have told you. 
I have not discussed the matter with anyone, and it was not until I was reading the details and bearing in mind the possible date when the woman met her death that I, in any way, connected this with my husband's statement to me in March or April of 1941. And because of the articles referring to witchcraft, etc., I decided in the first place to write a letter and sign it Anna. I put sufficient clues in the letter which should have helped to identify me, and it was only because of a subsequent appeal in the newspaper and because I felt I ought to say what I know of this matter that I decided to arrange to meet you. I cannot add anything further, and because I am now married again with three small children, I hope that what I have said to you will only be used to aid the course of justice. And it is this which has prompted me to take the action I have. I was not treated too well by my husband and do not wish in any way to rake up the past, but if what I have told you will help you in this matter, then the foregoing statement has been made by me voluntarily and with that end in view. I, of course, have no proof that what I told you now is the truth, but bearing in mind my husband's condition and what he said to me at the time, I have done my best to recall it to help in the inquiry. Signed, Una Hainsworth. Oof. Pretty direct. Yeah. And here's the clincher. That all checks out. Jack mm -hmm. Mossop was a real guy. He was married to Una. There are the certificates to prove it. They lived in Coventry, where he also worked. Jack was a test pilot, during which time he suffered multiple head injuries by his own admission. Mm. According to Bill Wilson, a co-worker who ended up staying with Una and Jack for a while, in a statement to the police, quote, Jack and Una did not hit it off too well, and they were having trouble. Even Una admitted that Jack did not treat her very well. The couple were, quote, not living a normal life. And Bill got the impression that something was concerning them. He said that Jack could be very moody and suffered from headaches and nightmares. That'll happen with a lot of head injuries. He was also a very heavy drinker. And Bill said that Jack took, quote, a lot of time off work. And that Jack was also quite friendly with the opposite sex and liked to hang around them and buy them drinks. Mm -hmm. Bill figured that, this, that these women felt sorry for him. Okay, Bill. No. Get out of here. According to an unbelievably informative and well-researched blog called Joseph Jacobs, the story behind the last person executed in the Tower of London, which you discovered was written by um, Joseph Jacobs' granddaughter. Yep, Giselle. Giselle. It's, this, is, this blog is remarkable. The mm -hmm. research is, is unbelievable. So this blog says, quote, By December of 1941, Una had had enough of Jack Mossop. She too noted that he was very fond of women and that women's clothes had appeared in their house without explanation. So he had side pieces. On December 13th, she left Jack and moved to Henley in Arden, presumably in the company of James Hainsworth. That's her second husband. She did visit the house on 39 Barrow Road on three occasions after December 1941 to try to retrieve her possessions, including furniture. On one of those occasions, she saw Jack and he told her that he thought he was losing his mind and he kept seeing the woman in the tree and thought she was leering at him. So all of that is documented. That happened. Okay. After that, by his own admission yet again, Jack Mossop began to lose his mind. In June of 1942, Jack suffered a, quote, mental delusion while at work, and a co-worker brought Jack home to his family, who quickly took him to Stafford County Mental Hospital, where he was admitted and declared insane. According to roommate Bill, a doctor had said that if Jack had come in sooner, they could have operated on him, but he had left it for too long and it was too late. Now I can imagine, cannot imagine what this is referring to since we do have his death records. So Jack passed away on the 15th of August, 1942 at the County Mental Hospital and he was just 29 years old. Yeah. His cause of death was listed as A, cerebral softening, 
followed by B, myocardial degeneration, C, chronic nephritis, and D, acute confusional insanity. And what does that mean? Well, we'll break it down real quick. The immediate cause of death was cerebral softening, which can be caused by traumatic brain injuries. Right. It can also be caused by brain infections or a stroke, but the stroke is really unlikely in a 29-year-old man. And you can decide if you think he had a brain infection or not. I think it was probably all those head injuries. And in case you were wondering, um, cerebral softening can and does absolutely cause psychosis. Mm -hmm. So in addition to this, Jack had a weak heart from drinking, genetically faulty kidneys, and was slowly losing his mind. In short, if we are to believe Una, Jack, after years of repeated head injuries and alcohol abuse, went out drinking with a strange friend who, let's face it, killed a girl and stuffed her in a tree while Jack watched. Mm -hmm. You can say this was a practical joke all you want, guys. It clearly wasn't. Right. I think that was just an attempt to make himself look less guilty. Well, we thought it would just be like a funny thing where she woke up in the morning and she was in a tree. Right. I mean, I don't expect him to like try I don't to tell either. his wife what actually happened. Yeah, I don't either. Because it but... also brings into question all the other nefarious things that he's doing. Yeah, but what actually happened was like they, they killed this girl and well, yeah. and probably other officers. A hundred percent. Yeah, exactly. If, um, if that's what happened. If that's what happens. After that night, it appears that the guilt of what happened, whatever it was, and the image of the woman dead in the tree haunted Jack Mossop until he destroyed himself from the inside out. Mm -hmm. Who was Bella in this case? We don't know. The most we can tell is that she was Dutch. According to the wife, she was the Dutch piece. Mm -hmm. But if, and this is my pet theory, if you link that story with the theory that she was a local sex worker, I think you could have your answer. Yeah. Two men soliciting a local sex worker, driving out to the middle of nowhere, where they purposefully or accidentally, in an act of something else, end up killing her. She winds up dead. It's not like we've never heard of asphyxiation used in sex acts before. Right. Then they don't know what to do, and they leave her in a tree. Mm -hmm. No one knows who she is because... She's a sex worker, and we covered that before. Now, I don't like saying this, but to me, that makes the most sense. Yeah, I would think, okay, so my other thoughts okay. are that maybe none of that is right. Maybe. And maybe Jack, mm -hmm. Jack Mossop, mm -hmm. saw like the who put Bella in the... And the witch elm mm -hmm. signs. And if he was already kind of going yeah, a little crazy, definitely. he could have been having his own hallucinations. He could have, for sure. And I wouldn't expect Una to necessarily put that together. No. Or, I don't know, maybe she was just coming up with the, her own stories. Maybe. Now, the other, so I do like your theory. My other question to you, though, is in your research, did you see that the boys said that they put fabric on the end of the stick? To lift up the skull. No. So I had read and heard that like a bunch of times. Really? I so didn't come across in that. the okay, so we can double check this okay, yeah. too, just to see. Sure. So the coroner definitely um, suspected that it was a fifth asphyxiation. Mm -hmm. However, in some reports from the police, the kids said that they put fabric on the end of the stick so that they could um, get the skull up. They ripped fabric or even, out of there because it was fabric from her dress. Yeah. That's confirmed. Right. 
but they would have had to have like grabbed it from inside the log. Well, and it then... sounded like they were saying like there was just stuff in the log. So they were trying to get something on it to like it anchor it back gross. in. Or it was either to pull it out or to put it back down so that it Maybe. went down gently is what they were trying to do. Hmm. So that's where they're like, if it was the fabric from the stick, yeah. then that's how that got lodged in there. Um, so we could just double check to see if that's even a thing. But I've heard that on like yeah. a whole bunch of places. That's funny. And my only other thought is if it's not what you're saying, mm-hmm. what about the lonely Viscount? I thought that the whole time. I, I thought also like, uh, this is somebody's mistress and they yeah. killed her and put her in a tree. Yeah. This, this is the, the British aristocracy lives there. They're not going to admit to her like having a child out of wedlock to like the Viscount. Mm-hmm. That explains the pregnancy, too, because if she was having an affair with somebody in that mm-hmm. family, not even just the guy that lived there, that whole family mm-hmm. was at this estate and people visited all the time. Prominent political people visited all the time. Right. What if she was one of their mistresses and they could not have people finding out about her and they killed her and they hit her? Right. I agree. Okay. That is not I, listed anywhere, know, no but it makes sense. It and then once you told me that it was just one person there, I was like, what? It could have just been one. I don't know exactly because yeah, yeah, yeah. the dates but, are weird. No, I know. But still, yeah, I'm I'm not against, like, it sounds like they never questioned They did him. not. They didn't. It I mean, if they did land. it, yes, it was. And they never questioned the family. They never suspect the family. And I think it's because they're nobility or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, no, I agree. Once I went into, because everyone's like, Lord Cobham, Lord Cobham. They never say who the guy is. And I'm right. like, I gotta know who this dude is. Because once I looked at the pictures of Hagley Hall, it's impressive. And I thought, this is somebody. And when I found out it was like a major family, that changed a lot. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't, at the end of the day, we don't know. But there is a little postscript to this story. Now, one would think that in this day and age, especially if she had a child, we'd be able to use DNA to find out who Bella was, Mm -hmm. right? There's databases everywhere. And we probably could. If they hadn't lost her bones. Oh, my God. What? Yeah, most of the evidence in this case is gone and was gone not that long after it began, honestly. Hey, oh, my God. Yeah, they lost her skull and her bones and all. And the, and, and frankly, um, most of the, like, the, the coroner's inquest and all mm-hmm. that kind of, like, official documentation, that stuff is lost, too. Mm-hmm. The only surviving bits of it are the parts that were shared in newspapers and things, not the right. actual documents. So really, we don't have a lot to go on now because DNA could be a thing. She had a kid. Yeah. She has people out there in the world. So in 2017, authors Alex and Pete Merrill, who had written a book on Bella's case, tried to do the next best thing. They approached forensic anthropologist Caroline Wilkinson to see if she would maybe reconstruct a digital digital depiction of the victim's face using only the photographs of her skull. And they commissioned her, which means they paid for this out of mm-hmm. pocket. Um, and thankfully, there are a lot of pictures still available from several different angles of the skull. And Caroline Wilkinson was pretty famous for doing facial reconstructions and doing them well. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the um, reconstruction version of Richard III online. That's her work. And so with the help of her colleagues at the Face Lab in Liverpool, John Moore's University, she was able to extrapolate Bella's facial, facial features based on all these pictures that they had of her skull. And I will put the image of Bella's projected face in the photo suite. It's pretty remarkable. The image is photorealistic. Everyone was hopeful that this might trigger a new lead because suddenly we have what probably looks like her face. But 
nothing more has ever been found. So yeah, that's that's all the info we have, unfortunately. Who put Bella in the witch elm? We may never know for sure. Hmm. But you guys can tell us what you think. Yeah, let us know. I would love to hear any more theories because there are so, so many out there. And if you rabbit hole yourself into like web sleuths or Reddit mm-hmm. or any other forum, you will find multitudes of them. Yeah. Yeah. And they really harp on those shoes. Yeah, they really do. And because we don't have the evidence to prove yes or no on a lot of things, we just have to consider that almost anything could be true. Right. Which is rough. Mm-hmm. So, toast? Toast. Um, to Bella, if that even is her, if that is her real name. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know, man. I would say Anna, but she kept that, or, or Una. Una. But, like, mm-hmm. she kept that secret for a long time, and then she was really shady mm-hmm. about giving it to the police. I know. So I don't know if I want to toast her. So I had read or heard somewhere that she, her excuse for not coming forward was that she just wasn't, she just hadn't connected it yet. Yeah. And then when she kept seeing these articles come out yeah, about the Yeah, because they really never stopped talking about her. Yeah. And so then once they, once she saw the articles come out of, with all the witchcrafty stuff yeah. and people were really like grasping onto that because it's like the most interesting. Yeah. And a really eccentric old kook is the person who was presenting right. it. So it was. She being a good Christian woman was just like, no, this isn't witchcraft. I must tell you what has gone on. I have to tell you. And right. um, and so her whole thing was just like, well, the guy's dead. They're not going to. Yeah. It's whatever. Like just just letting you know it wasn't witchcraft, but the person that did this is dead. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that was like her, her initial way. And then right. of she like did not help, saying anything. So we'll give her a toast. Mm-hmm. And then once they reached out, she was like, I gotta, I gotta show and myself. little Tommy who told his parents. Tommy. Good job, Tommy. Good job, little Tommy. Yeah. You did the right thing, bud. You can live with yourself, unlike the rest of them. I know. <laughs> they I did don't... go on to make statements and they, they talked to the coroner and okay. they went to court and everything. So the boys all, all ended up helping, but. Cool. I wonder if they felt like big shots in their little suits. How long they would have lasted had that first one not spoken out. Wonder who would have been the next crack. They all, I mean, they all would Tommy, have. No, no, no. I feel like if they held that in, they all would have turned out to be like drunks. Like, <laughs> like yep. Tommy being the worst of them. Yep. Yeah, no, agreed. They would have had a horrible time. He would have like died in his early 20s and they would like all go visit his grave being like, oh, they buried him near the witch elm. The secret was too much for him. Too much for him, man. (laughs) We should have said something. No, man, you can't think about that, Fred. You can't think about that. They'd all have Ouija boards like, now you're up there with her. Tell us who it is. Yeah. And it just says, fuck you. (laughs) Now. Fuck you guys. (laughs) Should have called the cops. Yeah. It's a story's really interesting. Yeah. Guess you'll never know. Bye. Never know. So yeah, that is the full story. Okay. Of Bella and the Witch Elm. Thank you, Holly. Thank you, Leslie. Hmm. And if we trusted the kindness of strangers on a lonely spring night, we, we would be, be dead. dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. 
and join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more.